Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. So for those of you who've read Be More Pirate very closely or more than once, you might find our guest today to be a familiar name. Towards the end, there's a chapter in which Sam writes his own pirate code and one of the articles in his code is called Make Citizen Shift which is a challenge to all of us to see ourselves as citizens rather than consumers. And the inspiration for that article came from the New Citizenship Project, which was co-founded by our guest today, John Alexander. John spent the majority of his early career working in advertising, the pinnacle and pioneer of consumerism, but eventually turned his back on it when he realised very starkly the damage that it was doing. The New Citizenship Project was his rebellion, a challenge to the societal story that the only power we have is as consumers and a challenge to organisations that the only thing that they can do is sell. He's now captured all of his accumulated wisdom and learning with the NCP into his first book, aptly named Citizens, which is out on March 17th. I was very lucky to read a preview copy, and honestly, for anyone in our community who is connected with the idea of rehumanising work and challenging the transactional and mechanistic workplace cultures that we tend to have, this book will give you so much inspiration and ammunition. You can pre-order it through his publishers, Canterbury Press, and that does make a huge difference to authors. But rather than take my word for it, listen to today's episode, which will be a very juicy chat about how exactly you can make the citizen shift. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) Which may or may not get (laughs) (laughs) re-recorded. Thanks so much for coming on. It's really great to have you because you're kind of one of the original inspirations behind the book. There's so many different kind of projects and names in there that people don't realise, but you really did inspire Sam to think about things differently. So that's really huge. I remember actually a um, pretty profound experience walking along the banks of the Thames in Putney with Sam when he was like starting to turn towards the idea of like leaning into the study of pirates and unpack it for people. I invited him to Putney, but we actually went to St Mary's Church, which is where the Putney debates were held back in 1647. And the soldiers of the New Model Army came together there to debate how to run a kingdom without a king in very pirate fashion. And I took Sam there because actually I think this was just before the Golden Age Pirates. So Sam and I have been bouncing these ideas off off each other for a good while and and, and it's so lovely to now be in touch with you Alex and to be having some fun with you so great to be here. That's really interesting because we talk a lot about the legacy that pirates left but we don't actually talk that much about what came before it or where that on land rebellion may have begun stirring so yeah the Putney debates. So where I'd love to start today is to hear a little bit about how you came to your thinking on citizens, because in the book, such great and clear framing about historically how we've moved from a subject story to a consumer story. And then, well, we'll see what the future holds. But there were certain turning points in your life story and journey that got you to this point. So can you tell us a little bit about that? 
the only dream I had until about the age of 21, 22 was to, was to be a professional sportsman. I was a, I was a rower and I was, I was going to make it. I was going to be in the Olympics, Alex. And then I turned out I wasn't good enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I sort of, I sort of stumbled into the advertising <laughs> industry. Yeah, quite. And so really, if, if anything, having kind of bought the idea that, well, look, it was, it was 2003, the collapse of the, of the World Trade Center, the 9-11 attacks were still a fairly fresh memory. And that moment when, for those of your listeners who were, who were as old as me and, or older and, and around at that time will remember, like the world leaders came out and said, like, go shopping. Like that is the way to sustain our way of life, to show that we're not bound by these attacks. And I guess that at some level that did have a pretty formative effect on me at a time in my life when I hadn't challenged the story too much. So I went into the advertising industry to some extent, at least seeing it as sort of great work as something that would be sort of very important to do in the world. But quite quickly, I began asking questions. I began asking myself, like, what are we really doing to ourselves when we're telling this story that people are consumers constantly? And it, like, it all stemmed back actually to a conversation with my first boss very early on, who sort of sat me down in the early days working there. And he said, uh, what, what you've got to understand, the, the, the way to understand your job is that is that the average consumer sees something like 3,000 commercial messages a day. And your job is to cut through that. You've got to make yours the best. Our agency's messages have got to be the ones that come through. And that's how we sort of raised the game. And for a while, I was sort of happy with that job description and was pretty good at it. The competitor in me from wanting to be an athlete really liked that. But then I began to ask, like, what are we doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers 3,000 times a day? When, like, what, what is that overall? What is that kind of aggregate impact? And from there, I just pursued that question deeper and deeper and and once that question had started to form for me life got really hard actually so the time in around 2010 where I was actually physically sick on Oxford Circus tube station pretty much every night for a week and then eventually had to resign I I just I just at some level like really deeply hated who I was and what I was doing I don't say that to sort of vilify everyone who works in advertising today although I do think that industry's got some pretty serious problems that was my personal experience of going I'm not championing a story that I believe in and want to be part of. I'm preaching a, a story that I hate, that I think is minimizing us as a species. So I went to quite a dark place, but then sort of gradually left the industry. And I, I actually went to work at the National Trust and started exploring ideas there and using creative skills in a different way and started to find another question, which was sort of, well, what would it look like to put the same creativity and energy that currently goes into was preaching the consumer story into inviting people to participate in the world of citizens, not just sell them stuff as consumers. And I sort of began to see this juxtaposition of consumer and citizen. And after a while there, I wanted to go deeper into it and went back to do some more study, actually. Went to do a master's in philosophy and really got to this notion of subject, consumer and citizen that you've referred to. And it's this idea that like end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, and for a long time up until then, the dominant story was something like the subject story, like the right thing to do is keep your head down, do as you're told, get what you're given, because the God-given few who run society know best. And therefore, if we follow what they tell us to do, that will lead us to the best outcomes. And I came to this understanding that that had kind of collapsed in on itself in the early mid 20th century. And out of that story had emerged more or less deliberately the consumer story. So the idea there is like the right thing to do. It's a moral story. The right thing to do is to get the best deal for yourself on the basis that if everyone pursues their own individual self-interest, that will add up to the best for the society as a whole. So it's a story about like how the best world emerges. And then this sort of Putting subject against consumer was powerful because it made you go, actually, the consumer isn't just a bad. It was very liberating from what came before. But now it's really struggling. It's run out of road. It's got too far. It's started to corrupt our relationships with ourselves and each other. And what might emerge, what's bubbling and what could come through is this citizen story. This idea of of that the right thing to do actually is to get involved, to shape the world you live in, to be part of the conversation about what's best for society as a whole, actually, because... All of us are smarter than any of us. And if we tap into all those ideas and energy, then all of that diversity and all of that brilliance can add up to something greater than the sum of its parts, only if we let ourselves be that. And one last thing I'll say in this this very first bit, sorry, I know I've just like taken off at you, Alex, but is is like (laughs) going back to the conversation with Sam on on the banks of the Thames, like the way I've come to see it through the course of writing the book is really that like, 
We are and have always been citizens by nature. That has surged and bubbled and found oxygen in space at different times in history in different ways. And what I think is so exciting about the relationship between those who were there at the Putney debates and the Golden Age pirates, like I think it's because like the pirates are citizens. They aren't destroyers. This is the wonderful, like Sam opened my eyes, you guys have opened my eyes to this. Like that whole thing of the pirates being propaganda from a subject story that had been under threat in the time of Charles I, right? Like that's what the Putney debates were, English Civil War, kind of, it had been under threat and the pirates were another round of that threat. The subject story told the pirates, shaped the pirates into something that was a threat rather than opportunity because it was a deep threat to that story. And so I guess where I think we are now is a moment when that citizen story, that idea of ourselves is bubbling again and popping up everywhere. But it has been there in the past and it's been squashed. And this moment for me is about like, can we do it? And what does it take to actually sort of really step into this story and make it the whole, not just another little fizzle of rebellion? How do we create the pirate state? (laughs) Yeah, and that will be the topic of conversation now. Like, how do you move people from non-citizen? And let's quickly define citizen in the way that you define it in the book, which is not to see it as a status or something that you can own just own so you know legally we tend to think of it as something that you get when a government gives it to you or not but you can see citizenship as something completely different you can see it as a practice that's how I interpreted it in the way that you described it a practice something that you get good at the more you do it in the way that I would describe pirate as a practice the more you flex the muscle absolutely it's like yeah I love that metaphor of a muscle you build not a cup you empty but thank you yeah I I mean I think it's Mm. a really important one because the way the term citizen is used or can be used today can be really destructive like you're either a citizen or a non-citizen you either have the passport or you don't you have the rights the reason I'm worried if you're not a citizen you're illegal right exactly or or an illegal sometimes that becomes or you're an alien right You're, you're actually not a full human a lot of people respond to that by saying actually we should leave that language alone like we shouldn't even talk about citizens because that language is inherently exclusive but I buck against that and that's why I've chosen to make citizens the title of the book actually as well because I I think language matters. Language has power. If we abandon that language, we're actually leaving a really important bit of territory wide open for those who would co-opt it. As you say, like what I'm talking about in the book, and I make this very explicit, is this idea that citizenship is practice rather than citizenship as status. Citizenship as a as an attitude to the world and an attitude to each other that's fundamentally rooted in believing actually in one another, believing that we are fundamentally capable, caring, creative creatures who can and want to make the world better together and therefore creating the opportunities for one another to do that work. And I think actually citizenship as status, in a way, I think of it as being sort of the consumerization of citizenship, right? Like it's the attempt of the consumer story actually to destroy citizenship by making it, as the consumer story does with almost everything, making it a possession, making it something that can actually be bought in many cases and actually removing the meaning from it or corrupting the meaning of it. And so, yes, it's it's really important to emphasize that what I'm talking about in some of the work I've been doing, we've talked about like creating a citizens Britain and been very clear immediately afterwards that yes that does include refugees and migrants like we have as much to learn if not more from people who are often denied the status of citizenship as anyone else about like what citizenship really is and and is all about. And I want to come back to that idea of the language and the whole story around being a citizen taking a citizen approach to things but before we do that I want to pause with probably the only real challenge I have to your to your idea and your book that kind of came through when I was reading it. And this isn't so much a challenge to the idea, but the idea in practice in the paradigm that we're currently in, which is how would you distinguish doing citizen work, i.e. building community, contributing meaningfully, looking after each other? All of that work is brilliant, but it tends to fall maybe you disagree with this, but it can often tend to fall to people who are either in quite difficult circumstances and have got the impetus to improve their community, or it tends to fall to women or minorities. A lot of that work tends to be unpaid or not recognised as valuable within the current kind of paradigm, which is a consumer one. And I would argue that 
doing kind of voluntary work, citizen work, should be paid because it's hard. So how would you look at that? Because then you're kind of bringing in the consumer story into it, which you don't want to sort of infect it with in, in a way. And that's, I feel like, such a big challenge. The book I've written and the ideas I'm working with, they are about how do you build community? How do you do that work from the grassroots? And yet I'm very clear, and, and I think it's really important to be very clear-eyed, that that in itself will not be enough. Precisely as you kind of allude, actually, people have been doing that work throughout history. Like people have been doing that work unrecognised and unappreciated and under-resourced. And they will always continue to do that work. What will create that transition, what will unlock it, is only really, and this might just do this a bit into a conversation about how does change really happen. I think the only way for this really to take hold is when this very way of thinking actually transforms our institutions. When governments and organisations actually see people as citizens and create the space for them to contribute in those ways and structure the space for them to contribute in those ways. My favourite example, the, the example that really sort of set me alight in researching the book and still still sort of makes my heart beat faster every time I think about it, really, is the government of Taiwan and what's happened in Taiwan over the last decade or so. And just to give a, the briefest, you'll have to read the book for the full story, people, but the, the, the briefest, <laughs> yes, the briefest flavour is, is essentially that this is, a, this is a nation where the idea of the citizen has come to take hold of what government is and does. And this is particularly pronounced in, in the Taiwanese response to COVID, where we're essentially from the very beginning when we need the ideas and energy and resources of this nation to be devoted to this thing. We need ideas from literally everywhere if we're actually going to be able to make the best response. And, and there was things like creating a, a telephone hotline where any citizen could ring in with ideas for how the country's response could be better. There's a lovely story of a six-year-old boy ringing up and saying, the kids in my class don't want to wear their pink face masks because they, the boys especially because they think they're girly. So can you do something to make pink face masks cool? I recommend working with the baseball team. And a few days later, you had half the time when his baseball team on the national press conference wearing their pink face mask. But to your like very key challenge, the, the approach of the Taiwanese has been rooted in making it possible for everyone to contribute. And they were the first in the world to start to give direct cash payment to citizens, so a form of universal basic income that would enable people to actually support the economy back into life. And the first in the world to sort of create the space for the kinds of responses to set challenge prizes, but fund the responses to those challenges that would help the nation get back on its feet and would help the nation respond to the virus. But that entire notion was really rooted in a belief and is continues to be rooted in a belief that the good of the society will be best served by making it possible for everyone to be supported to contribute. Drawing through from that in the final chapter of the book at some length, like you're right that people are doing this work already, but the only way for it to be institutionalised, the only way for it really to take hold is for the structures and processes to be put in place that allow it to be sustained. I'm a strong advocate in particular of universal basic income or universal basic wealth is one version of this that would actually say like, no, we believe in everyone. The thing in UBI that I'm particularly passionate about is, is this idea that it says, no, like we know you want to contribute. All we have to do is make it possible for you to do so. There's a beautiful future wanting to come through that in a few years' time we could be in, where basic income is looked on as obviously as the creation of the motorways or whatever was in the previous era. There's just obviously we need this basic infrastructure of society, which enables everyone to have the cognitive space, have the emotional space to actually put themselves into the world in the way that they want to. Yep. Completely agree. I'm with you on universal basic income and the UBI labs, like the testing, the giving people the chance to look at it in a really local context and ask questions about what they could do with that money if they had it. And I also love Taiwanese example as well. There was loads in there I wasn't aware of, even though I've read that story before. So yes, absolutely read the book because that really is a great story. And that leads into an interesting thought in that you're right, this work has been done underneath the radar for a really long time in different places and sometimes it bubbles up through and then simmers back down again and the thing that really did strike me the whole way through the book what would you do as a former advertising person with all of this and the need to tell the story of this approach in a more powerful way you've laid it out so powerfully in the book but that's the first time I've really seen it that way and 
this is definitely has been my experience when I have worked at charities and in sort of social change context before that these really good ideas and projects and work that's being done by people to really change communities and take a citizenship approach to things. It's quite hard to make that story as powerful as the consumer story that we're being told day in, day out with all the resource behind it. And so even if you do get that into institutions, and part of the reason it's not getting into institutions is because they can't hear loud and clear what the impact will be because that story isn't either succinct enough, powerful enough. What could we do on that front? How could we tell the story of it better? First thing I would say is, I think we're living in a moment in time where the story of society is up for grabs to an extent. Like I, th- I think the, I think there are cracks in the consumer story to an extent that there really haven't been ever before. Those cracks like really became obvious in in two thousand eight with the financial crash, and then they sort of got quietened down again. But now they're really they're really like they're there and they're open and they're wounds. But the nature of systems change. The story breaking isn't enough for the story to be let go of. There needs to be another story to step into. And the danger in this time is that actually there's another story in the background. The subject story is kind of looming again, right? And in times when things feel dangerous and threatened, like the appeal of the strongman leader, the appeal of someone to tell us what to do is, is, is very powerful. And so I think you're right to name like the challenge of how do we make the citizen story as available to step into as the subject story or a kind of rebooted like turbo version of the consumer story because because both of those are forming as well and really like that's why i wrote the book was to at least try and make this alternative story visible and name it as succinctly and as tightly as those other two sort of possible futures are I mean, in terms of how that work of change happens, I take a lot of inspiration from Taiwan, but also from what's been going on all over the world, because I think it is happening. And I think the way it happens is through a combination of what I've, actually, this isn't in the book, but what I've come to think of as a combination of rituals and totems, like a combination of small day-to-day things that we pay attention to and that shift And we design them differently so we have slightly different prompts in our everyday existence. And these sort of symbolic moments, these these totems, as I say, these sort of totemic symbolic moments that carry a different story of who we are. And that's how I think about a lot of the changes I talk about in the book. So one of the projects I'm working on in the, in the background and, and is, a, is a concept of a citizen confidence index as a measure of success of society, as opposed to a consumer confidence index. And like, what would that do if when we talked about the success of our, of our economy, at the moment, one of the great rituals is whenever there's a report on the growth or not of a nation's economy, there's immediately footage of people in shopping centres and discussions of whether <laughs> consumer spending is up or down or consumer. But if we could have a measure, and actually uh, the work we're doing suggests that there's a much more powerful link to much more sustainable forms of economic prosperity from a citizen confidence, from people being confident in their ability to shape their own circumstances, then if that was something that were talked about on an ongoing basis, that would support the story. Similarly, uh, on the sort of totem level, I mean, we're seeing how it's transforming societies. Like, So I talk, I talk in the book about the Irish Citizens' Assembly that not enough people know there was a citizens' assembly made up of 99 randomly selected Irish citizens that got to the proposal to legalise access to abortion up to 12 weeks that then went to referendum in 2018. So the Irish process of legalising abortion wasn't just a referendum, it was a citizens' assembly, a deliberative process as well. But the really interesting thing is what's happened in Irish politics since then. So the citizens' assembly structure has been institutionalised. So there's now, there are citizens' assemblies on a number of issues every year. There's now one on drug policy, for example. But the consequences of that in the Irish sort of psyche in relation to politics are profound. So you, you, you have a nation that's trust in government is radically increased. You have a nation where people feel like they are part of deciding how a nation is run. Just a couple of miles away from us, right? Like, in some cases, no distance at all, as will become increasingly an issue. But the nature of that process having happened there and growing, that, that is what I would describe as a totem, because it sort of lives us into that space. It carries that story. And, and so if we can have a combination of these things going on, I actually think that that's how change will happen. It's it's not necessarily through sort of messaging it better. I actually think the citizen story is a more compelling message with a, a higher form of freedom and greater creativity than the consumer story could ever offer. But it's it's more like 
what are the moments that will allow us to sort of step into that? And when it happens, it'll then be really quick. So like a, a part of the Taiwan story I tell, and just to go back to that is like in 2012, they were pretty much where we are now. And it was, it was, it was within the space of five to six years that the, that the entire idea of the relationship between citizen and state in that country turned upside down. The theory of change essentially runs that we are by nature citizens. And what we have to do is not teach ourselves to be that. We don't have to go through some sort of long learning process. We just have to stop like preaching shit at ourselves to use, like we stop, we just have to remove, like give ourselves the oxygen to be who we most truly are. And when that space is created, we're going to step into that super fast, like really fast. I love the phrase social acupuncture. I talk about it a bit in the book as a phrase originally given to me by, or, or not given to me, given to the world by a wonderful woman called Auric Gall, who's a complexity theorist and other brilliant things. She talks about this idea of social acupuncture, this idea that like the energy for the next system is kind of already present and the energy of the next story. And it's not necessarily the kind of the really linear interventions that will unlock it. It's sometimes like releasing the energy in multiple places in different places and, and that will allow it to kind of flow and take hold. And I think to your challenge of like, how do we really do this? I think I would finish by kind of offering that social acupuncture metaphor. It's exhausting to be a consumer. It's actually that we need to maybe remove some of the resistance first, because you're right about the Irish example, but nobody really knows about the deliberative part of the referendum. It's the moment in which they actually step into the citizen story themselves in some way. And that can only be done through a means of participation that is meaningful to them, which means government needing to do what Taiwan has done and, and allow people to meaningfully contribute. It's really interesting because the danger is that looking at that contrast can make us feel kind of helpless where you and I are sitting. The thing I would say as well is that it doesn't necessarily all have to come from government. I talk as well, as you know, about the role of business and the role of charities and NGOs as well. And some conceptions of citizenship, like I'm a huge fan of George Monbiot, for example, in a lot of ways, but I think he uses some of this language in a slightly different way to the way I do, where for him, you're a consumer in relation to business and you're a citizen in relation to government. And actually, I, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. I think government can treat us as consumers. And the form of democracy that we have today is, I would argue, kind of consumer democracy, where we're limited to choosing between the options someone else offers in the form of a vote every few years, rather than that kind of dynamic participation that, that the Irish or Taiwanese examples show. But equally, charities and NGOs treat us as consumers. The, the, the idea that they are providing services or, or saving nature for us, or kind of doing stuff for beneficiaries. And actually, a lot of the work, I think, and where in this sort of social acupuncture mindset a lot of the work can be done from all sorts of different places and angles and, and different levels and is always about like how do we do this together like one of the case studies in the book is of a lot of the work I was involved in and has continued and gone far further since my work the National Trust where that organization has really I think stepped into an idea of itself not just as a sort of as a, as a seller of days out in order to fund conservation work but actually as a movement of people who care about place of people who believe that beauty matters and treats people and speaks to people in ways that reflect that by involving them far more in its work. And I think that kind of shift is profound as well and, and can create the space for us to eventually probably like not put up with government treating us as consumers anymore and demanding that actually we have a say in how our society works. I can see that coming. Like I can see it. There's talk in sort of circles I'm on the edges of, of developing kind of participatory democracy processes on the future of British nature, for example, and developing kind of people's plans for these kinds of things that become very difficult for government to ignore if they have genuinely got their legitimacy from representative voices of the population. And I think that sort of mode of work is very pirate, right? Like it's very like, well, if you're not going to give us the power, then we're going to like take the power. And I think that might be more how it happens. The gift of the social acupuncture metaphor is really one that says like, it's effective everywhere. You might not see it add up, but it is effective everywhere. And I agree with you so much. Like being a consumer is exhausting, especially being the kind of consumer who's trying to consume a way to a better world. Like, oh, like how much weight is that to take on, right? Like it's so hard. Someone asked me the other day, like, so what does this mean? What does an individual do? 
And I was like, do you know what? Like the biggest thing any individual can do is be less of an individual, right? Like is actually like go and like find some others and find your tribe and find your people. And and I know that's like, that's the sort of pirate vibe, right? So it's, it is this, it is this work. I know. And this is why I landed on when we and Sam were, when we first met and we started talking about what was the mechanism for change that we were like landing upon with getting people to break rules inside organisations and things. And I just kept feeling like, what's wrong with the sort of petition method, the protest method and the charity method? And I was like, they're all disconnect. They're all a disconnect between me, the individual, and the thing that I'm doing. It's, you know, like you beautifully said, it's an organisation saying, don't worry about it, give us your money or give us your signature and we'll do the rest. It's not a moment where you like, say you step into it, you, you sort of almost have something at stake for yourself. And that's actually where people invest and they commit. And yes, it's time and energy, but it's also so rewarding to be contributing meaningfully just to shaping something so long as you really do get the chance to shape it. So yeah, I completely agree. And I would say to anyone who also works in charities or membership organisations, nudge, nudge, your example of the National Trust in the book is such a good one to show how it is possible to change, to not just be continually churning out the status quo where you take money from people and then it's a very transactional relationship. You, you've really done something very, very different there and, and presented a model for other charities or membership organisations to follow, which I think is brilliant. But what what was kind of interested in, I'm somewhere in there, like you're right, it is a very pirate thing to say, we're just going to get on with this and do it without permission. But that's not an easy thing to do. It's something I kind of almost repeat all the time on this podcast. Is there anything that you've noticed, because you've got some brilliant case studies of people who've made that citizen shift, who've led a community or led an organisation towards a different approach. Is there anything you noticed about what enabled them to take that on and to shift, whether it was in their kind of mindset or who they are as people? Because there's a slight sense of exceptionalism that these sort of brave or particular individuals who have it within them, you know, and then that fuels the hero story yet again. And we don't want to do that. Like you said, it is a collective thing, but you've also identified that there were people who led the change. It's a great question. I opened the book with these five stories of sort of emblematic citizens from across the world. And they look very different and sound very different to each other and are, and are in very different spheres. And some of them, when you meet them, are, it's a real balance because they are exceptional and yet they are not as well. And that's part of what I wanted to do. And reflecting on that and reflecting on like what does make those five people in particular like really similar. The deepest commonality, I think, is actually a, like a really resilient and insistent belief in humanity. That I think is the most profound characteristic of this work. Like you have to keep faith in humanity. You have to keep believing in, in everyone you meet that their reactions to you, which aren't always going to be positive are coming from somewhere that isn't the deepest truth of them. It's sort of a bit weirdly quasi-religious, right? Like, it's all a bit love thy neighbour. But it's, it's true, right? Like, the people who are really <laughs> able to sort of sustain themselves in this work are doing it from, like, a deep belief and a deep love of the other. There's other stuff as well, of course, like energy and kind of perseverance. And there, and there are often crisis moments in people's lives where it's just like, well, I'm either going to do this or I'm going to give up. Like there's often a vibe of that. And there's a sort of fuck it moment. <laughs> no one is coming to save you moment. Exactly. And I think those decision points are there and those triggers are often very powerful. Ultimately, it does come back to that. In a way, the greatest work in this time, I think, is going to be the opening of the doors. Not so much the people who do the organising as the people who allow that organising to take hold, who are going to be the most important. In the Taiwanese story, my absolute emblem of this is the guy who was the Speaker of the Parliament in 2014. There was an occupation, sort of Occupy protest style, student occupation of the Taiwanese Parliament. Speaker Wang, who was a member of the governing party by political disposition and so on, there was a moment when he said that the students were debating the clauses of this trade bill and so on. You're going to have to read the book, people. But um, Speaker Wang, at this moment, <laughs> there was this moment in time when Speaker Wang said, no, this is what this space is for. This is democracy. What is going on here, what these students are doing is democracy. And that coming in behind, that making of the space, that single most heroic thing I think I wrote about in this book, 
the seizing of the opportunity to allow this story to take hold. These moments are happening all of the time and no one will get fired for not taking one of them. No one will lose their livelihood for letting one of these moments pass. That every moment like this that we allow to pass is a moment when the subject or the consumer's future become the more likely. It's sort of back to this thing of like, we are citizens by nature. These people have been doing this work for time and memoriam and been underappreciated. The critical thing is in this moment in time, when this is happening again, when this is bubbling again, when this is coming to a critical point, do we open the door or do we not? It was actually because of this, it was one of these moments that came about that made me actually go, right, I've got to write this book. It was in May 2020. And people might remember this was this was the moment when the messaging in the UK changed. So when the first lockdown was called in March, the, the message was stay home, protect the NHS. And the message shifted in May to stay alert. The visual went from red to green. Do you remember? It was all this. Yeah, stay alert. Control the virus. Control the virus. That's right. Yeah. And it was super confusing. We were all kind of looking at each other going, what on earth are they talking about? And what I realised was like, I was out, I went for a walk and I was like, hang on a minute, this is one of those moments. We've been in the subject story. We've been told like paternalistic control, like stay at home, protect. And that's starting to fracture. And because like many have forgotten is that that same week, Britain had exceeded the death rate of any other European country per head of population. And the the focus was starting to come on, like, hang on, we haven't done this right. And the message shift, but that message, but at that time, like people have been dropping those viral kindness postcards saying, can I help you through letterboxes? We'd had 750,000 people apply to be NHS first responders and crash a website that had been designed for 200,000 over a period of weeks. We'd had like mutual aid groups springing up everywhere. Like we were doing it, Right. Imagine the message shift had been to the sort of Taiwanese model. Could have been a moment when we went, okay, people, we need you. Our government could have gone, let's set up a hotline where ideas can come in. Let's do some challenge, let's build some apps. Let's like that help us understand where PPE is. And we could have done it. Like templates were there. The Taiwanese government published a, a set of 124 actions that are taken in an English language journal as early as March. Like we could have done that stuff. And I don't blame anyone or any politician actually because I don't think anyone could see it certainly other countries couldn't either what happened instead was we moved to that stay alert message because we moved from subject story to consumer story because the only thing we could do was go screw it we have to go back to personal responsibility to it's all on the individual to if you look out for yourself then you'll be all right and anyone who doesn't it's their own fault because we couldn't see that there was another story possible we just couldn't see it even though it was there and I think that for me is is the absolute why I have written this book now, like, was because I was like, Jesus, like, if we can't see this, then we're going to stumble into a future where there are only two options and both of them suck. What I believe is if we can see this, if we can make it visible, then actually it's not so hard to step into. And it's not kind of politically one way or the other. I think it's possible. Another sort of, it's just a way of another flag to say, really read this book because you're absolutely right. And I have also experienced that play out in some of my work through the pandemic in people in professional positions really struggling to see how they can enact, like I say, a more citizen approach to work and helping people that they're working with. I'm not going to, really struggling here not to mention any particular things to give this example. But I I think I shouldn't. But exactly seeing that, you know, it's not the individuals, it's just simply that the only inherited stories we have is that or this. Even though, having said that, given all the mutual aid groups and the volunteering response, it's almost that we just don't know what to do with it because we don't have the responses in place. Like, you know, a council sees volunteers and they go, yeah, but this doesn't really work within our policies. Or, well, you're going to have to go through a sort of, I think I put this example in my book, like that you're going to have to go through a 10-week DBS check in order to deliver something to somebody's home according to our rules. And yet people are going, well, that's too late. This is a moment to trust people to make the right decision in the moment because ultimately people are generally responsible and it goes back to what you said about having a bit of a faith in humanity people want to make the right choices most of the time it's the exception to the rule often the one moment in the research and the writing of the book where like the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end was i interviewed audrey tang who's the digital minister in taiwan and she was part of the hacker movement before she became part of government 
I said at one point, like, people must really trust the government in Taiwan for this to have been possible. And what she said to me, like, stopped me dead in my tracks. She said, we don't care that much. We don't even want people to trust the government. Like, when people trust the government, stuff happens like happens on the mainland. Which is she said to me, which is quite funny. But anyway, then she said, what we do care about and what we absolutely insist on in everything we do is that the government trusts the people. That expression, that articulation of what this moment really demands, like, yes, it demands that we all like we all get stuck in and be less individual and find our tribes and organize and demand. And we can do some of it by creating the structures in parallel. But there will come moments at the level of an individual organization, at the level of a whole nation, at the level of a family, when that request is made, when that path is opened, when the possibility is offered. And the personal people in the positions of power in the existing structure open the door or walk away. And those will be the moments that decide. I don't like to let them still have power in some ways, but I think if we kid ourselves that that is not necessary, that we don't need the speaker wangs, that we don't need that mindset, then we are kidding ourselves. But what we have to do is make it possible for that to happen and show that it is happening elsewhere because that's what gives the confidence to do it. We don't live in a moment in time where, and this isn't a book that I've written where I'm like, it's all going to be okay, kids. We're going to be fine. We can do this. Like everything's going in the right direction, really. It's a thing that says though, like, this is possible. We are enough and we can do this. And it is going to require some pretty seismic stuff to happen. Yeah. And I think the examples that you give I don't know if you describe them as big projects, but let's call them totems, as you've used that word, moments that would rely on particular door openers to essentially make that citizen shift and say, okay, we're opening the doors. And you've been making some quite, you know, invitations to certain companies to lead the way on that front, whether it's Airbnb or Facebook, to democratise, to open the doors to a citizen approach, whether it's becoming a co-op or something like that. And you're right that those feel like they would provide a seismic moment for other companies to lead the way. It's quite often just a tipping point and then the dominoes start to fall. So building some momentum behind the ideas that you set out in the book would actually, I can see very clearly how that could provide a pathway into this better future and not the kind of dystopian surveillance state or dystopian consumer narcissist, let's say. (laughs) I think you're right. Like, Because I'm wary that maybe I'm coming across a little bit of saying the power is still, the defining decisions will still be on the inside. I do a couple of thought experiments in the book that are sort of quite seriously meant challenges, but also illustrative because they're not things I'm directly working on as yet. I talk about Citizen Facebook. And in this one, it really is the challenge to the insider power holder because we're in this moment in time where the big conversation in the world is like, how do we break Facebook up? I really love that actually there's a James Plunkett who's a guy who wrote a book called End State recently, which I really recommend to you and your listeners as well. Obviously, slightly below citizens on the list, but uh, you know, James has this lovely way of putting it where he says, we don't need to break the platforms up, we need to open them up. But the really fascinating thing about Facebook in particular is that the power to do that is in one guy, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg is still, as a single individual, a majority shareholder in that business. He could tomorrow decide to institute a series of citizens' assemblies as part of the governance structure of Facebook. He could tomorrow give his shares away to, or give a significant proportion of his shares away to the users of Facebook and make it essentially a kind of cooperative. He could do these things tomorrow. And if he's speaker wang enough, he will, right? Like, that's on the one hand. The other thought experiment I do in the book is, is one I talk about, like, what if we could crowdsource the Universal Declaration of Human Rights version two, right? Like, and this, I think, speaks a bit more to the power that exists that we do have. Because at the moment, I would argue the big international NGOs are, are guilty of defending something themselves rather than opening it up in a similar way. And the risk is that the human rights will get broken up because they aren't opened up. And the power to open them up, the power to to crowdsource the next iteration of that declaration, the power to generate it from the grassroots up to hold a process that would that would do that, and then could challenge governments to step into that with the legitimacy of saying this is the voice of the people of the world that have defined these things. This isn't those thirteen people in a room in San Francisco in 1948 or however many it was with Eleanor Roosevelt chairing. This is the people. 
And we can do that now. Like the global assembly that was run on climate in the run up to COP26, like we have the processes that could do this. And that is the power that exists on the outside is to step into being the voice that holds the voice of people, the voice that holds the voice of community and challenges the existing institutions to be as legitimate as that. That is a challenge to those organisations as well. There is a challenge in this work, both to the power holders, the Zuckerbergs and so forth, and to those who too often see themselves as powerless. Only if all of us see our role in opening this up, only if all of us do what we can to kind of hold the space for one another. I talk about it as being anti-heroes in the last section of the book. I don't think we can do it without the insiders. It can be made irresistible. Yes, I think so too. You put it in the book as citizens must propose, not just reject. And there is a bit of a tendency, especially when you're talking about really challenging the big institutions, whether it's world governments, United Nations, World Bank, or it's big consumer businesses like Facebook, the idea of ever getting someone at the top to redistribute power. And I'm just speaking from, you know, sort of giving voice to our community who very much feel despondent a lot of the times about the ability to have that power redistributed really when it feels like it's often getting worse. It's so important to have a counter narrative that gets repeated all the time and have a counter narrative that feels where you can do something. You know, you've done such a brilliant job at breaking down some of the practical smaller steps that the new citizenship project has tried and that have worked and have gotten results for businesses. So you're sort of saying, you know, there is a business case for this too. You're not just going into an organisation and saying, do this, but you won't make profit. They can buy into that a little bit. But you've also kind of got these big ideas and big ambitions and visions for people to kind of grasp onto something that is quite visionary, which I think is really needed too. So that's another little small plug there. But it kind of does encapsulate it all. You know, you can really follow through the historical basis for how we arrived here and then, you know, the two futures laid out carefully and then come on, let's pioneer this middle way. That's the whole reason for this podcast, so that we can keep on hammering the message home. <laughs> and I hope that people just feel that there is hope and there's so many turning points at which it can all shift, I think. I agree with you. It's that thing. There's so many turning points. Having that social acupuncture view where you're like, each time these things happen, it's not the same as the kind of small actions add up to big change story, which I think has some challenges to it. But these moments come. And with that deep, resilient belief in humanity, they will keep coming. And when they are taken, they're taken in a second and then they look obvious. But it's like, we've got to create the conditions for more of those moments. We've got to create those moments. And then it's going to be irresistible. I think that's a line in, <laughs> a line in uh, Black Sails, which is a really great pirate TV show where he's like, you know, they'll say it could never be done until it was done. And then they'll say it was inevitable. Amen. Yeah, even though it's fiction, it's, it's a really great encapsulation of the problem. One final question before we go. On a personal level, how much do you feel that you enact the citizen story? I mean, obviously, it's part of your professional life. But in terms of you personally and, and being able to resist pull towards the consumer narrative, because I just think about this you know, day to day, I'm very aware of the better choices to make. And yet I don't always make them still, even with all the knowledge and resource and privilege and ability that I have. That didn't sound like a question, but it was. <laughs> I guess what I would say is, well, it sort of goes back a bit to what we were talking about earlier with being a consumer, trying to save the world from within the consumer story is exhausting. Being a citizen, I think, doesn't make those actions less important. Don't get me wrong. Like, what I think it does do in the way I choose to live my life is that I know that unless I put my own oxygen mask on first, I'm useless. I have to live in the world that I'm living in now. I have to work for the change that I want to see in the world from the world I'm living in. And if I get myself into such a state of guilt and anger and exhaustion that I can't do that, that is the story beating me. That is the story moulding me into a shape where it can control me. I don't pretend to be a complete paragon of virtue. I, I do my best. But what I absolutely focus my energy on is the stuff that I do with others, is being with people, finding their energy and helping them to find that energy. And the biggest thing I, I try and do in my life, and I've become more conscious of, of this as a result of writing the book, it would be very easy for me as a 
as a, as a sort of 40 odd white male, a six foot gets into places relatively easily. But my role, I think, and the, the most important meaning the citizen work has for me is to make sure that I open the door. I am a platform, not the lead actor. If any of those chances to be speaker wang ever come up, for me, that I take them. Those are the standards that I will hold myself to. Still all the sort of making the best possible decisions matter. Citizens also consume and consuming responsibly is the right thing to do. But there are bigger things and we have to work for change from where we are. And that's the way I choose to hold that. And I hope that's helpful to others. It definitely is quite a noble stance. And it's really, really difficult to resist the surrounding influences that we have. So you just have to kind of, like you say, accept this is the world that you are in right now and keep moving towards the alternative. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate you taking the time to share all your wisdom with us today and really great to discuss the book. I felt like we fairly scratched the surface of it, really. So your book is available to pre-order now. It comes out in March. That's correct. I rarely promote books, which is ironic, really, because we (laughs) we are built on books. But what came through in, in this conversation and I'd like to emphasize is I'd support any book by someone who is a practitioner of the work that they're talking about, that they actually get in the mix and do it themselves. You've been in organizations and doing that hard work of helping them to change how they operate. And that is hard work. And that's where the real insights come from. Not to say there's anything, I have anything against academic researchers, but I do feel that they're one step removed from the reality sometimes. So love hearing it from like the groundwork. Thank you so much for having me. And and just to say, like everyone who's listening to this podcast and has some connection with the idea of being a pirate, you're doing the work. If I can contribute in any way or give you any sort of sustenance and inspiration for that work, then it's an honour to do so. So thank you again for having me. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at BeMorePirate on Instagram or Twitter, or visit BeMorePirate.com. See you next time.